This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Alyssa Bennett is co-host of the C-Word podcast on Luminary, as well as a decorated historian of bad behavior. By sifting through the cultural trash heap of history, her podcast takes deep dives into the lives of famous women who've been called crazy through history, the stories that were told about them through the tabloid press, and the real life that was happening behind the scenes. Alyssa is also the author of four zines, collections of essays reflecting on dozens of fascinating characters in pop culture deviance. She mines the depths of the internet for strange truths and even stranger gossip, weaving in personal anecdotes of her own. Today we'll be discussing why we love trashy media of all kinds, using our brains that they said would certainly be rotten by now. We'll even give the final thought, usually reserved for Jerry Springer, to Alyssa's child genius, Ollie. So join us in this cultural trash heap, where I promise we'll find just a little treasure. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm very excited about this next episode. Um, We're going to have some true, real, authentic fun. And I'm very happy about that, as I'm sure uh, you may be considering our climate. Um, So we are talking today to Alyssa Bennett, who is co-host of The C Word uh, on Luminary, which is a podcast that is definitely one of my favorites. Um, And she is the author of many, many zines, uh, which we'll talk about. And... um, On another note, before we say hello to Alyssa, uh, our producer Miranda is going to join us today uh, for the recording because we've been consuming all of the same reality content now for the entirety of the pandemic, uh, mostly from the early 2000s. And so she's going to pop in here with some extra commentary. So hello to both of you. I'm so excited to be with you guys. I feel like I've known you my whole life. I feel like I used to babysit you. <laughs> I feel the same way. You could still babysit both right? of us. Yeah. It's a true honor to be in the presence of the uh, foremost historian of bad behavior. Wow. Here I am. I got my degree from Phoenix University. <laughs> Online? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Alyssa, how did you become a historian of bad behavior or more broadly, what was your personal journey from your early childhood into this wonderful world that we are going to call trashy media? Love trashy media. Um, well, you know, I grew up in the in the 80s. I was born in the late 70s. I grew up in the woods. Like to get to like a place where you could buy a stick of gum, you had to walk for 30 minutes or something. So really in the middle of nowhere, we had four channels of television, just the classics, PBS, NBC, CBS, and ABC. And because it was like a relatively isolated place to live, and I was a latchkey kid, I really was raised on television. So I when I think about when I was 
you know, 10 until I was probably 17, I think I've clocked minimum, often more, but a minimum of eight hours of television a day. So I think a lot of the very formative experiences of my young life and adolescence were were televisual. So I remember Waco, I remember, you know, like these, just these flashpoints. Um, I remember being, I don't know, probably like seven and seeing there was a, a newscast on and I've tried to find it many times. I can't locate it, but it was a local newscast. And they were reporting on someone who'd jumped off a bridge into a river. And live on the newscast, they the the reporter was like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" Because the body was floating down the river. So these these moments that would sort of rupture regular programming with either scandal or disaster or these socially significant moments of rupture that I watched on TV, interspersed with classic daytime programming, which was, you know, the goal, it was the golden age of daytime talk shows. So I think a lot of the way that I thought about things was formed visually through that experience. And then I think also, I was always a relatively kind of sneaky, secretive kid. So I had a TV in my room. And I would, like, I remember very clearly when the preppy murder, can you believe I remember the fucking preppy murder? Well, guess what, bitches? I remember it. I'm old enough to remember it. So I had like a little black and white TV in my room. Like when I took a bath, I would bring this black and white TV into the bathroom. I just wanted to be with my TV all the time. So I remember right around the time that Robert Chambers was about to go to trial. I don't know how old I was. It was maybe like, in my head, it happened around the same time that baby Jesse fell in the well, which was like another major news story of my childhood. But I think there's like a year or two separating it. It's like 1986 or something. So I had this little TV in my room and he was about to go to trial. And that that show hard copy was on TV. That was Maury Povich's show before he had Maury. And there's no contemporary corollary for it. But it was like a big subgenre of crime, celebrity, scandal news and it was a half hour program and I remember they announced that he was going to they had like some insane video of Robert Chambers that was incredibly incriminating it would show at like four o'clock in the morning and I somehow willed myself to wake up for it and turn the tv on really quiet and in my room alone and it was this video of Robert Chambers at a party after he'd murdered Jennifer Levin and he was pulling the heads off of these Barbie dolls and talking in this kind of squealing little girl's voice. And I just, it was like, it's these kind of little traumas, I think, um, that attract me to, attracted me to the, to the sort of specific interests that I have, I guess. So if I may ask, what were, what was your parents' perspective on you consuming all of this or did they just have no idea? I had a pretty unsupervised childhood. So, you know, my dad worked all the time. My mom worked all like a regular job and then went to night school for like years and years and years. And I was, I was alone a lot. I think someone wrote an essay on television. I don't remember who, but it's this essay that is basically suggesting that all the most creative people that he knew were like TV addicts. And I think that it just kind of cracks open these vistas that are not appreciated within high culture, I guess. Yeah, I, I uh, was definitely, and I think Miranda too, we were both pretty unsupervised uh, kids a lot of the time as well. And TV kids. TV, yeah. yeah hours of TV. And uh, 
And it's still so, um, as we'll probably get into uh, what we've been uh, all viewing during this yes. pandemic. We're still unsupervised because Alyssa hasn't shown up to babysit us yet. <laughs> You're latchkey kidding still. <laughs> we are. So just to to stay in the genre of trash talk shows for a second, because I know that you've been just eating fistfuls yeah. of it for, for weeks now, maybe even. Um, and so... On our episode, we kind of covered like a specific sliver of trash talk. So I was wondering if you like what you were finding yourself like what's memorable from your big deep dive. Can you give us like a highlight reel? Yeah, but I also you know what I was thinking about Jerry Springer used to be like kind of a more serious talk show. It wasn't always that sort of bacchanal of tacky artificial family feuding. It wasn't always like that. So I, I definitely watched that. The things that that I've been revisiting lately, my favorite show was Jenny Jones. I loved it. I think rewatching it now, I understand that the audience comments were probably scripted, but she would always have like the funniest audience members. They would come up with these disses for like teenage girls that were so funny. And so rewatching that, it was, it was interesting to really, there are not so many episodes of it on YouTube, unfortunately. And I think that there's not going to be, obviously, as you addressed in your show, a major reclamation of that program because of the scandal that ended it. Because I think that a lot of those talk shows, they're sort of more available than hers. I think YouTube has like, I don't know, six episodes. But she was big on things like me and my mom play guys together or like you're too fat to wear that or, you know, it was like a hum humiliation kiln. But you know what? I, I'm a big rewatcher. I like to rewatch things. So in going back and, and watching episodes of things on YouTube, I, you know, I think I've watched the Club Kid episodes that were on like every major talk show like a million times. I love Gigi Allen episodes. They're incredible. It's always interesting for me to, you know, obviously with retrospect, but identify these kind of major precursors for big social rupture. So the club kids definitely like people if they if people haven't watched them go watch them all. I think there's like five. RIP Michael Alleg. Damn. I should have emailed him. I never even thought about it. That was a missed opportunity. I know. Michael Alleg was uh, one of the club kids, which is a great example of sort of the mixture that we kind of wanted to maybe talk about of like high and low art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, they were very, uh, they were sort of early rave kids who created sort of a whole fantasy world of, uh, of, of what flamboyant dress and uh, party drugs, and uh, it ended in murder. And then. In a Macaulay Culkin biopic. Yeah. Seth Green, too. God, I love that movie. But they even reenact. Uh, I, I don't know, remember which episode they reenact, but whatever talk show they went on, they they do like, I think even like a a, a word for word reenactment of it. And I re I remember that so well from that movie. It might be my favorite scene from it. Um, but I think that shows sort of how iconic that was. I found that I did it again. I always think if you do something twice unconsciously, it means you really mean it or you really believe in it. And I found myself watching those episodes of, of these club kids and Googling all of the sort of satellite figures. My big passion is a satellite figure. Like I don't always like the star. I don't always want the Michael Alec, but I want the um, sort of hanger on who's been rendered completely obsolete by time. So I was looking them all up. And as I was looking them up, I was like, Oh, I did this the last time I watched this. Like you Google Princess Botanical, and you see her and you're like, Oh, yeah, 
I already saw this. It, it probably extends to the format of a talk show, but there's something comfortable about revisiting something familiar. There's something comfortable about rewatching things for me. Like I think I've seen every episode of Intervention like at least twice. And if I'm like, oh, what am I going to watch? Or if I'm like, I don't feel so great. I'm like, Intervention. Watch a comfortable episode of Intervention. It's just there's something, the predictability is really comfortable. And I think that that was part of what made that genre work so well at that time. I don't think, you know, like I can't imagine getting into Wendy Williams or any of those other talk shows that are on in the daytime now. You know, there's something that time has done culturally. And I think you address the parts of it that are um, negative. Like we don't want homophobia. We don't want transphobia. We don't want racism. But I think that the way that talk shows are now, and it maybe started with the Rosie O'Donnell show, but all of the transgression has been stripped out of them. And that is what I find uncomfortable. Like I don't, there's no pleasure in it. The other side that we didn't get into that I want to talk about, it's just there are two distinctive threads right here. There are two distinct threads. There's the masculine and the feminine, as it was put in in the sociological text that I read. But, you know, you have your Oprah and you have your... Geraldo. You have right. this sort of like throw down, punch, scream, and then you have your let's like catch the moment where the tear rolls down your face and right. we can all enjoy this moment of exposed trauma together. Theater of tragedy aspect mm. of it. Mm-hmm. And you could still say it's trash or whatever, but it's not it's not the same. Not deviant trash. Also, I think it, it must be like a kind of contracted audience because I think that that polarity that you're talking about, if we look at Oprah versus even Maury, which, you know, was like a pretty trashy show in its way. I think that the, the, main, the main function of those shows is kind of self-location. As a kid, if I was going to watch Jerry Springer, which wasn't my favorite show after it got farcical because I didn't believe it anymore. But to watch Jenny Jones and something that I liked about that show was that you sensed that it was authentic and that it wasn't only people that were like going on with a fake story so that they got a trip to Chicago. You know, like you sensed, oh, these this is real. There was something real, like very authentic and legitimate about it. But I think that that polarity is about viewer identification. So you either want to identify with Oprah, who is, you know, caring and wholesome and not exploiting people on the surface, or you want to look at, like, I think I called it like a a Bacchanal of farce. And you want to look at the Bacchanal of farce and think, and that's not me, you know, it's, it's a, it's a linguistic construct. So I think it's, it's very logical that some sociologist would sort of identify it using male or female, Um, the male being the trash, I assume, and the female being more nurturing version of it. I think that the theater of tragedy element of it sort of ameliorates people's guilt about their voyeurism also. And like, what kind of guilt, what kind of guilt you're prepared to experience in your voyeurism. There are different levels of guilt that people are prepared to accept, you know, like, oh, I'm a good person. I don't want to watch that kind of degradation. But you watch degradation in a different way. Like I remember an Oprah episode, she used to have these episodes where it'd be like, my mother abused me and all of our siblings in a house of Satan. And she murdered my sister in front of me. And you watch it and you think, how is this not more squalid than watching like a fake paternity test result, except that it's real. I mean, yeah, we've just forgotten that Oprah was one of probably the most responsible people for 
that panic mm-hmm. because she kept entertaining these stories. It's real QAnon shit, right? It's like wild that it was so totally accepted by mass media. She promoted these like really, really dangerous ideas. And I know that it was by no ill will. Right. A lot of satanic panic was also in response to cultural expressions that people thought were trash cultural expressions, like heavy metal, obviously, was like total cultural excess. Someone said to me the other day, like, don't you ever feel sad about all of the dark subject matter that you're interested in? And I was like, no, I don't. And I don't feel guilty about watching TV either. How do you guys, what do you guys feel about, you know, there's been like this um, new elite reclamation of television as a medium and people are like, TV, is, it's the golden age of television. It's finally worth something. You know, I work for like a grand dame, like a, an amazing queen of an 85 year old woman who's very cultured and she only listens to either the band or classical music. And she's like, she watches all this TV now because it's it's been legitimized by by the higher echelons of culture. Like it's okay to watch it. What do you guys think about that? Yes, I think it's become acceptable. And I think a lot of that has to do with it no longer being based in the Nielsen rating system. Yeah, maybe. that's what I always think about is the, the Nielsen boxes. When you guys were in high school or college, did you know people who were like, oh, I don't watch TV? Yes. And you just thought, what kind of life are you leading? What sort of life? I feel like I went through a phase where I pretended that I didn't really watch TV. Oh, girl. Welcome back. I know. I know. Thank you. It was a short phase, but it was a bad time. And it was never true. It borders on offensive to me. (laughs) I'm so sorry. No, that doesn't border on offensive. The idea that you should be ashamed of watching television borders on the offensive for me. And, you know, I just grew up in a family where everybody watched a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. And we still do. I mean, that's like a lot of our conversations are what TV shows are you watching? And you know what I will say? As a former uh, traveler and hitchhiker... Oh, really? Oh, I'm interested. There's a TV show that I want you to... I'm going to send it to you. There's like an episode of a ID murder show that's about travelers. It happened in New Orleans. It's a fucking crazy story. You're going to love it. Go on. I love when people try to terrify me. Uh, about, about I'm not trying to scare you. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, uh, something that I found is, and so this is another reason why I will always like sing the merits of television is that if I was with somebody who was driving me and, and we couldn't connect and it was weird or uncomfortable, I'd always go to TV, say, what's your favorite TV show? And immediately you can connect with somebody. And it really, a lot of times you can connect with people that you would not ever be able to connect with on like almost anything else. I had a woman pick us up once and she thought we were going to kill kill her. She was like, I oh, yeah. lifetime movies. I know you're going to kill me. But the way that we were able to like say, hey, we're, we're not going to kill you is by me talking to her about Wheel of Fortune. Oh, what a great show. Minus Pat Sajak's bizarre uh, still taking women by the hand and walking them to their mark. You know what I, there's the Pat Sajak <laughs> moment that I really remember, which I I guess I didn't know it was April Fool's Day. And he was like, with Vanna at the end of the show. Oh, I just read a great thing about Vanna White in this 
you'll never make love in this town again, which is like these four women that were like escorts or like lapsed groupies. And they wrote this tell all memoir. And one of them had a crazy lesbian romp with Vanna Wyatt. <gasps> love it's, a, it's a good book. So the Pat Sajak moment, they're standing together and he says, I have something that I need to get off my chest. I don't want to live a lie anymore. And he appeared to re- remove a toupee and he was totally bald, but it was, a- I didn't know it was April Fool's Day. He had a bald cap with a wig on top of it. But that's like a very memorable, that's like the body floating down the river on the news for me. I thought it was good. It was like a good gag. I mean, whatever. It's a good gag for a middle-aged man, I guess. I My question to you, perhaps you dear listeners, is if you don't watch TV, how do you escape sort of the void? I My question is, what do you do when you're doing your dishes if you don't watch TV? Do you guys feel chilled by silence? I can't stand it. I always have my Bluetooth headphones around my neck so that I can listen to a podcast or an audiobook. I, I think I like silence sometimes. Chelsea's a silence boy. Chelsea's good at exploring their inner landscape. Well, bless you. Beautiful. Bless you. It's the nicest thing you've ever wow. said to me. <laughs> That's pretty nice. So, Alyssa, a lot of your work uh, explores in the essays that you write, which are usually about like sort of deviant subjects, bad behavior subjects, subjects who kill, um, things like that. You also really tend to bring yourself into what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that with things like uh, trash talk shows and then also reality TV, which is sort of a logical thing to also look at as its evolution. Um, I think we see, and you're kind of already said this, we see ourselves in ways that we don't want to, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as somebody who, who, who is consistently, and I think myself and Miranda do this too, who are constantly taking in this type of media and then interacting with Mm -hmm. it in a more uh, conscious way. Uh, What do you think about the idea of like, why do people hate this? Why do people hate this trash, quote unquote, other than class? We kind of already covered that. But yeah, I mean, I think it's about quarantining yourself from things that are that are squalid to kind of deny that it could ever like encroach or leak into their lives. I think that's a fear. I think I said earlier, that's also why people watch it because it sets up a sort of system of comparison where you see someone's shambolic life playing out on the stage and you get to say, well, that's not me. It's like, well, you know, the, the compulsion to look at a car crash, you look at the car crash because it reaffirms your life. And I think that watching a mother-daughter stripper team who are playing guys, like you look at it and you think, oh, I'm not that bad. And I think that a lot of reality-based television is about that. It's um, self-identification. It's about self-affirmation. And then, of course, you know, I think that there is an undeniable pleasure in, in all forms of voyeurism. And anyone who is not in touch with that needs to come to me for therapy and I'll teach them how to embrace it because I think it's an important part of being a person. Do you think that, because I'm not always sold on this idea that we're like obsessed with seeing, you know, like schadenfreude, like we're obsessed with seeing other people in pain. Like, I don't know if like, do you think that that's true? I don't always buy that that's the, like the bottom of the bottom of the I don't think it's about, no, I mean, I don't, 
I don't think it's about schadenfreude. I think it's about something kind of more subconscious. It's like less a sort of identifiable impulse on the surface. I think it's deeper. I think also, you know, obviously those shows are constructed around entertainment. So there there are all these kind of showbiz elements to them that make them compelling. The same with, you know, I always think that the golden... Old people, this is what's going to happen to you too when you're old. You're going to think like, wow, that thing that happened at this point in my life was the highlight of that thing. That was like the best moment for that thing. So when I think about reality television and when it sparkled the brightest, I'm thinking like probably 2003 to about 2008. I would say it ends with Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. (laughs) But... I think it was it was such a strange, I mean, obviously not totally novel because there was like the loud family. There were, you know, that that show on PBS that kids that paid attention in school watched that was about the family that lived in like the 1850 house, which now I would kind of like to see. I'd like to see that. Right? It sounds sort of good. But I think that when it first emerged, it was, again, you know, it, it's become sort of progressively more scripted and more divorced from reality. And I think that there were instances, like I'm thinking about like a dating show, like we talked about Rock of Love last night, which I thought was a great show. I thought the spinoffs were great. I just thought it was great. And obviously, there's like some scheming and there is some architecture in it, some you know, producers are are designing the the interactions a little bit. It's like got all of the major themes of Shakespeare. You have a villain, you have the innocent girl who is going to be defiled. You have a Lothario. It's, you know, just very traditional um, sort of dramaturg- drama, is that, is that, dramaturgical means something else. I looked it up recently. I don't remember what it means. No, that's right. But these theatrical conventions that leak into this, situation that is, I think at that moment, the the situations were more naturalistic, they weren't as built out, you know, like, I just, I I don't know if you guys read my Kardashian essay, I, I had never seen the show. And so I watched every episode over the course of a weekend. It was, it was intense. Because a magazine was like, will you write about the Kardashians, the end of the show? And I was like, I've never seen it. And they were like, we don't care. So I had this idea, I'm just going to watch all of them. And then I'll be able to give like, you know, an expert opinion on what that show is about. And it's interesting to watch contemporary reality television and to see how artificial it's become, how scripted it feels, also how stripped of pathos it is. Like you watch the show and like every other episode, someone has like a new husband or like someone's having a drug overdose, or there are these major dramas that play out in a way that should be compelling, but it's so acrylic and so artificial and so directed that it's like I could get no purchase. It was like wearing high heels on ice. Like I couldn't dig into anything. So it felt like a void to me. Whereas these really junky shows like Rock of Love or like The Surreal Life, which is an insane show, those shows had had some element that felt authentic to me. How do you feel about the Jersey Shore on that scale? You know, I never watched it. You know, you that's that's what we're going to try to make you do. I'll try I'm going to try it. 
it's interesting because it sort of illustrates what you're talking about because it begins, I think, in, in do you remember, Miranda? Is it 2008, seven? Sounds right, or nine. But but over the course of four seasons, you can see them start creating right. situations. Right, to keep, it's, it's a motor, so like a propeller. On kind of what you're talking about, it, it, like the dramaturgical aspect of it, sometimes I watch the Jersey Shore. And my example that that when this struck me was, and I, I wish I had the quote and I wish we could just play the audio, but it's Snooky. And she's upset because one, the other guy in the house, Vinny, who she's been cuddling with slash having sex with here and there, um, is sort of rejecting her and bringing another girl home, right? Oh, so she's just like, Vinny doesn't like me. I'm depressed and I don't want to go out. And for me, it struck me that I went to snooty University of Virginia poetry grad program to write that same sentiment right. and in ways that are far less easy to understand. Right. We want to reject the fact that we're watching ourselves no matter how like clownish we think that it is. It's like we're watching the same problems, the same pains, like play out again and again, just in all of these like far more interesting ways. Right. Right. What's your favorite subgenre of trash, Alyssa? I have a couple. So I really, really, really love message boards a lot. This word trash always indicates excess. It always indicates something extraneous that's waste, that is unnecessary, that, you know, it's just like extra. Just thinking about like the way that comments compound on a message board. There's a website I really love called findadeath.com that has like celebrity death message boards. And they'll sort of languish for like three years. And then someone will be like, how come no one's talking about the death of Lane Staley anymore? And then someone will come in and be like, I have to use an anonymous name because Lane Staley's family would be very upset with me. But this is precisely what the death scene looked like. And here's a photograph of my purse in his condo. And it's it's really exciting. Or people will come in. There's a really great one, classic, incredible deleted thread, but you can still find it on Brad Renfro, where this woman comes in. And her moniker, her handle is Frodad's friend. And she, after his death, she's like, she comes in and she had been, I think, on the Lane Staley board. So people were familiar with her. But she starts talking about how she knew him because his grandmother lived in the town that she grew up in or something. And she starts you know, spinning all these yarns about the time they spent together. And it goes on for pages, like 20 pages of it. And then it becomes clear at a certain point that she has another handle called Big Bird. And Big Bird comes in to sort of confirm all of these stories that Frodad's friend is telling. And it's like spinning out of control. And at first, people were like, wow, that's really amazing. Tell me what his hand smelled like, you know, like they want these personal details because that it's like an excavation. Like the message board is like a grave robbery in a way. So they want these details to make the deceased remote object of affection kind of flesh out in a fuller way. So she's satisfying these questions. And then eventually it's like, she's so taken over the board that people are like, will you shut the fuck up? You know, they're like, this is enough. Like these stories seem inconsistent. And then someone in the thread goes into the internet and like is able to identify who this woman is and they completely like humiliate her. They debunk the story. She's like chased from the message board. And it's, it's just really interesting to see how this place that's like not, 
I think to most people, it's not a significant place. It's not a place where people would anticipate that the kind of drama that unfolds on a talk show would unfold, but it does. And it's such a sort of psychologically complex, interesting place of evaluation that I have really appreciated and that I really love. And there, there used to be a website called Topics that's gone, but it was like, it would be regional websites that would either be like my neighbor, like they would dox their neighbors, basically. And it was usually people that you'd never heard of. When I wrote about Rebecca Gayhart, I found one that was by like the people that she went to high school with who were like, Rebecca Gayhart was a crackhead and a whore. I can pull it and up. I always, did you find it? It's from Knew it would surface, it August 17th, 2009. I know I remember that. She's not new to drugs. We who grew up with her know that. So I guess she didn't let Hollywood pressure get to her. She partied way back when. If internet would have been round in her Noxzema days, then her career would have halted and she'd be working at her aunt's gas station thinking about what could have been. I doubt they will be defending her now. Her sis has to be getting a kick out of this. It's incredible. It's incredible, incredible, incredible. RIP, the sister died. <laughs> it's like an incredible, strange resource. It's like extreme access to a person that you're not supposed to have any access to, except, you know, as they're depicted in media. It kind of demonstrates how people feel compelled to get closer to these stories if they're close to them in real life or they have to like spin this narrative. Um, and then the other thing, piggybacking off of that, my other super favorite genre of trash that I love, love, love are these um, sort of amateur written biographies, scandal biographies of celebrities. Like there's an incredible one on River Phoenix that's like 8,000 pages. And it's just like, it, it doesn't matter to me how much of it is fantasy and how much of it is, you know, real biography. I'm more interested in that impulse that someone had to like expunge it from their soul, that someone had to write that book. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that I love celebrity as much as I love fandom. And I think that fandom show because fandom is like a trashy thing, sort of juvenile and tacky and sticky. And I think that fandom shows up in very beautiful ways in the sort of extraneous culture. What I remember uh, read or listening to the C word recently, and you had talked about how you prefer uh, like trashy grocery store books about celebrities, um, which I remember reading the one when I was a kid about Michael Jackson with the and on the cover, it was him in like the whatever the, um, hyperbaric chamber heaven heaven the other interesting thing about those types of things and i mean really all of what we're talking about is that the reactions to these people the ways that these books are written also tell us so much about the moment in culture right and like what were yes. people thinking yes. about and what was deviant you know like who it's just you you get a total even though it's coming from that individual Person, it's still expressing like all of these cultural ideas, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're time capsules. They're amazing, strange things that I think, again, because people want to put barricades around what is valuable culture and what is worthless culture, they're sort of relegated to like the trash pile. And I don't I don't think they're trash. I think they're really significant. Do you hope someone writes a trashy grocery store novel about you? I think that I've written the trashy grocery store novel about myself. I think that's what the zines are. Should we call Ollie in for a final thought? Hey, Ollie. 
Come here. Can you put these headphones on? Ollie is my – I have a child genius, which is very nice for me. Hi, Ollie. Can you hear us? Yep. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. You? Pretty good. Thank you for asking. Not just a child genius, but also very good manners. Thank you. Well, what do you think do – do you think TV is important? Yeah. Why do you think TV is important? Because it, A, entertains us, and B, can send wide messages across the world into people's homes. Like Pearl Harbor, the 2001 attacks, like the presidential elections. It sends information across the world to people of all ages and genders and races. Beautiful. You are so a- right. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Ollie. you, Ollie. I'll give you back to my... <laughs> Did you train him to say that? No, but can I quickly say that he just gave the speech that Nicole Kidman gave in To Die For <laughs> <laughs> about TV. He just did it. Oh, God. <laughs> He's far more cultured than we <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think that's I think that's a, a great way to end. So thank you, Alyssa Bennett. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was my great privilege. Ugh, it is ours, ours. too. I love you guys. We, we love, love you. Ugh. You guys can't see, but Alyssa looks amazing. Lots Just- of elderly people maintain their beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure that you listen to the C word on Luminary. Um, You will recognize another person as well, Lena Dunham. And they basically, y'all dive into uh, crazy people who've been called crazy, crazy women of history. um, And you pretty much reveal sort of what's behind the headlines. Sifting through the cultural trash heap of history. One rumor at a time. And your Brittany Murphy series recently uh, was very illuminating. Um, That was like my doctoral thesis at Phoenix University. (laughs) Uh, And make sure to you check out uh, printedmatter.org for Alyssa Zines. Um, Well, I hope that you uh, stay out there and keep it trashy. Absolutely. Bye. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we'll be talking about Disneyfication. Until then, if you want more content, consider becoming a patron of our show. You'll get an entire second bi-weekly podcast called Walk With Me, where I go on walks and talk about all the cerebral shit bouncing around in my brain and tell you some strange stories about my life as a traveler and even talk to some of my friends and acquaintances and maybe some people I meet along the way. So I hope you'll consider becoming a patron and join me on these walks and even share stories of your own. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. And we still have a bunch of very cool merch available. So if you're looking for t-shirts or tote bags, please head over to AmericanHysteria.com. And another thing you can do if you want to help our show that's super easy is just head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps us out. This episode was produced by Miranda Zickler with sound design by Clear Camo Studios. Thanks as always for listening. And if you haven't already, I suggest you binge the entirety of the Jersey Shore just to get to know yourself a little bit better. 
Hashtag, I am Snooky. Have a great week. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.